So in my last episode, I promised that I would release my entire conversation with Naomi Clark as a power-up episode. The power-up episodes I am planning as just a smaller format, uh, shorter episodes where I either dig deeper into a topic that came up in the course of an episode or points to new tools and resources that are out there uh, that are open or available to educators, parents, learners themselves. Um, That's the purpose of the power-up episodes. They're sort of in between a full episode and uh, something smaller. This is Naomi Clark. I don't think this conversation will disappoint. We get into gendering games. We get into the gamification of education and so much more. I am such a huge fanboy of Naomi's. Um, She is an assistant professor in the Game Center at NYU. She's also, she's contributed to a ton of amazing projects. Don't forget, if you like this podcast, please, please, please go like, subscribe, offer us a review, and don't forget that I, between now and Halloween, I will be giving away my three-year-old daughter will be giving away a Google Pixel phone uh, as a raffle for those who subscribe and review. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Without further ado, here's Naomi. Hey, Naomi, how are you? Hey, I'm pretty good. How are you doing? I had an interview with two young game design students recently, and one of the kind of warm-up questions for this was have you always seen yourself as a gamer? And the young man in the room, uh, Mikkel is his name. He's a terrific second year at DT at Parsons, uh, was a quick, um, yes, absolutely. And then went on to the story of how he sort of identified himself as a young person. He sort of, um, came into this identity of gamer. Uh, the, young woman in the room, Geneva, uh, had a totally different reaction. And from the history of these two young people, as they described it, uh, they had an almost identical history of playing games really deeply and uh, having a, a really um, deep ecosystem at home of games. But uh, the young woman was uh, really hesitant to kind of call herself a gamer. And this is a topic that I know you've written a lot about and I know that uh, you care a lot about. You know, gender identity and games is one that we could certainly spend multiple episodes on. But uh, I'm curious for you what you feel about uh, whether the identity of gamer is a more accessible one to young uh men or those presenting as young men at the moment uh, and whether there are things we can be doing to change that? Yeah, I think that's a great question. Um, First of all, I think we have to kind of ask what the term gamer is, right? So in my mind, someone identifying as a gamer uh, is, is a phenomenon you wouldn't have even seen before 1985 or so. Uh, it's it's a word that was, yeah, it was a, not in common usage before that time. If you sort of look at its history, the the usage of that word remains relatively flat, uh, you know, from 
all the way from the beginning of the 20th century when, you know, of course, people were playing games and there were board games around and things like that. Uh, and then around 1985, suddenly it goes up and between, you know, over the next 20 years after that, uh, it suddenly becomes 10 times more commonly used. So uh, what? Yeah. why did that happen? Well, 1985 was also uh, around the time that marketing for games changed. So yeah. there, there was... Um, a small video game industry before that. There were people making games, you know, in the four digital platforms in the late 60s, early 70s. And then as you got into the age of the, the home microcomputer uh, in the 80s, people started to make and sell these things. Uh, but the emergence of a gamer culture didn't really start until the last half of the 80s. And there was also a, a, a big surge in the number and type of, of platforms and the number of companies making games that was sort of after the the Atari crash. Uh, so in the early days, people who played Pac-Man, uh, Space Invaders, Asteroids, uh, or who were playing primarily on Atari consoles didn't really think of themselves as gamers. And indeed, the games were not marketed towards gamers at all at that point. They were uh, marketed as a form of family entertainment. So you'd see advertisements where there's a whole family playing Atari games together. Uh, wow. You know, girls and boys playing together, uh, you know, around an arcade machine or whatever. I think if you went into an arcade at the time and saw the people who were really intensely playing Donkey Kong or Pac-Man uh, or, you know, Galaga, other early games, probably was more predominantly young men. Uh, and I think as in part as a result of seeing who was gravitating towards this technology, towards the types of games that were being made, uh, a, a positive feedback spiral started. And I don't mean, you know, positive in the sense that it was really wonderful. I mean that it kind of just escalated itself, you know, went around in a feedback loop. Um, and so the companies who were marketing games saw like, oh, you know what? We should really double down on just this one audience that seems to be the most interested and started target marketing, which also became more common in toys and books in this mm. period of time, right? So toys got a lot more gender segregated during the 80s uh, for, for kids of all ages. And the same thing really happened with games. And so by you know 1990 or so, you see these um, advertisements on television and in print where it's all about this kind of adolescent, it's mostly like you would see a 13 or 14 year old uh, with a spiky early 90s haircuts uh, with a Nintendo Power Glove. And it was all about how you would be like really badass and like ultimately right. cool. And you're wearing some like wraparound mirror shades uh, or whatever, right? So that suddenly became the image and that was the first image of the gamer. Uh, so it's not surprising to me at all hearing uh, from people that grew up from, yeah, who were young kids in the late 80s all the way through, you know, if they grew up in the 90s or the 2000s, that the, as a marketing category, the gamer was considered to be a young boy or man, usually maybe from somewhere around 12 years old, uh, all the way up uh, into 20s and sort of getting older as, as uh, the average age of someone playing video games got older too. Uh, so... It was invented. The whole idea was invented to to try and separate boys from girls, right? So we that it's not surprising at all that you, if you asked two people with an identical history of playing games, that the that the man would say, "Yeah, I you know grew up thinking of myself as a gamer," and the woman wouldn't because that's exactly what we were all told to do. Mm. 
I feel like I'm cheating a little bit in that I have a hunch I know what your answer would be to this question, but uh, the follow-up to that to these young people was, do you think that uh, there's a place in game design for gender-specific games? Um, do you have a feeling about that? Uh, yeah, I do. Um, I'm kind of I'm kind of curious <laughs> what, what what you sort of imagine my answer might be because I'm not I'm not 100% sure about this ever myself. I think it's it's a question that that we have to sort of keep asking and investigating. Uh, I, I guess I would say that there's a place for very for gender specific games uh, as long as people are growing up and being shaped by gender-specific experiences, which uh, is, as far as I can tell, going to continue to be the case for the foreseeable future, that people are going to be molded differently by their environment, um, you know, maybe to some small extent by, by biologic or genetic factors, although I think that the more research we see coming out about that, the more we find that these things that are supposedly differences in skill between men and women, especially mm. the ones that there are some that are very common in video games, like spatial reasoning ability. Yeah. Uh, well, it turns out spatial reasoning ability, the difference between men and women collapses almost immediately uh, if you just train women in with a game that allows them to think spatially. Mm. Uh, so then that statistical difference just goes away. And a lot of it seems to have to do with, you know, like what kinds of things men and women are exposed to. Um, and then that also goes back to this gender segregation that really started uh, heavily in the in the 80s. If that hadn't happened in the 80s, then Lego bricks would still be marketed just as much to boys and girls. And so probably would 3D games and we probably wouldn't have a difference in spatial reasoning in the population. Yeah. Um, so I, I don't really believe too much in those kinds of inherent biological differences. I do think that that people's interests and aptitudes, the sorts of things that they enjoy, uh, the stuff they lean towards are very heavily shaped by gender because boys and girls are raised very differently. And that's not 100% a bad thing. You know, they're, it's, it's okay for, for people to be different and to have different aptitudes. That, in one thing, you know, encourages us to make different kinds of games, to collaborate with people who are have different aptitudes and specialties than we do. I think it's, I've always thought it's a little weird how much that's broken down along gender lines, right? There are mm. some people who are all for that as a division of specialties and interests in our society uh, and think that like gender is a very natural thing to divide people along and those people are called conservatives. Um, <laughs> because yeah, that's, that's sort of one of the bedrock tenets of social conservatism, right? That there should be a, a split in in what people of different genders do. Mm -hmm. So it's it's easy to say on one hand, oh, you know what? We, girls and boys shouldn't be playing with different things. Uh, we shouldn't be making games that are that are sort of targeted towards one group or another, whether it's young boys and girls or, or men and women. We really should be making games for everyone. I think that's a very pat answer. Uh, mm -hmm. And is it's it's both not realistic and it's not meeting people where they're at. The reality of the matter is that there are a lot of girls who, who have had, who have interests and talents, aptitudes, things that they gravitate towards, 
uh, things that sort of they feel strongly about or that you know, help them relax or have fun that that have been shaped by gender. And it doesn't make sense to simply say, oh, you know what, you you guys were molded in this way and we're, we're not really trying to do that. We're trying to do something that's totally gender neutral or mm. trying to do something that only do things that appeal equally to boys and girls. In fact, I think a lot of times that's shorthand for, oh, actually, we're just going to make something that doesn't seem quite so overtly targeted towards boys. But really, when you look at it statistically, it is. Yeah. Uh, and then leaving uh, women and girls out in the cold again. Uh, it's it's kind of like you know there are there are people that do gender neutral lines of clothing, mm. and whenever I see those lines, it's almost always the case that they they're very low in terms of the the valence of the gender signifiers involved in the clothes. They're they're pretty um, I guess you could say down to earth, not heavily adorned, simple uh, clothes. There that that's sort of what unisex signifies. Mm. And that means that the whole idea of unisex is much closer to the masculine end of the gender spectrum. Mm. Uh, even if it's totally possible for women to wear it, it basically means, oh, well, we can get women to wear, wear clothes that look more like guy clothes or like standard uniforms. Mm. Uh, and that is not that I think is a totally fake solution to making things inclusive, whether it's clothes or games. Uh, it's and it's not just. Uh, a, an easy way of just kind of shifting everything towards the masculine side of the seesaw. It's also, I think, you know, it's actively what people call femphobic, which is not quite the same thing as being sexist or misogynist. It's saying, well, certain types of experiences and expressions of genders, the ones that are a little bit more towards the feminine end of the spectrum, mm -hmm. let's let's really kind of ignore that stuff and favor stuff that's just kind of this blandly neutral, but secretly really actually towards the masculine side of the spectrum, right. uh, or, or boy stuff. And let's kind of valorize that. Let's try to get more girls involved in that. Uh, and that, that I think is just actively harmful. Mm. Um, because it, it devalues femininity. Uh, it devalues all the sort of historic expressions of femininity that have been around with us that have been sources of power for women for uh, for many, many centuries, if not millennia. Uh, and that is not, it's not necessary to do that in order to create a more gender inclusive world. If anything, it's harmful. So when I think about how games can be more inclusive of women, I'm much more likely to think actually everybody should be playing games that are that have more feminine qualities in them somehow, because that's what we we haven't had a lot of in video games because of this target marketing. Uh, I don't think that means we should have more games that are all princess dresses and ponies right. and uh, and and in pink boxes. That's just a set of stereotypes uh, that you know that marketers kind of thought are an easy shorthand for like how do we get it to appeal to eight-year-old girls? Yep. Uh, and it's definitely not the only route. I think it can mean a lot of things, and that 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 side of of gender in in games or actually in a, in a number of different cultural products just it hasn't been explored uh, as much as it could have been because it's always just been represented by pink princess dress, jewelry, um, and ponies, right? So yeah. to I th I think we we can go beyond that. We we will get there more and more. I see you know with with stuff that young people and students are doing. Uh, and that'll mean games that are for, for boys and girls that are not quite so stereotype laden 
-hmm. that also don't have to be in some sort of bland middle unisex category. Yeah. Wow. I, I, uh, I love everything you just said. Uh, and, and as I, I can't tell you how deep in it I am in, in, on a personal level, I have a son and two daughters and, um, you know, going down, I don't know when the last time you went down the Lego aisle in the toy store is, but, uh, you know, seeing, seeing one side of that aisle that is sparkly and pink and one side that is, you know, primary colors is, um, nauseating uh for exactly the reason that you just put so well which is that uh it's like we have this awful creative block um for uh what it means to be uh more inclusive in in uh in product generally um anyway my my hunch to what your answer would be was was uh, not that far off, but mm. it was going to be that it's that it uh, really depends on context. Mm. Uh, n- knowing some of what uh, what you've you've written on the topic and talked about on the topic already, but uh, I don't know if it's surprising to you. Probably not, because you're uh, you're an educator with students who are not much further along than uh, the the young people in the interview I just had. Um, but they're they actually. Um, they went pretty quickly to the uh, kind of neutral uh, territory where, you yeah. know, I said, is, is there a place for gender in games? And it was a very quick, no, everything should be for everybody, um, which I understand. And I think, uh, I guess I'd rather be their answer than, uh, than some alternatives, but uh, right. it also... Um, I'd say that that is now the uh, safe middle of the road answer. Since yeah. the extreme gender segregation uh, is, yes, people kind of recognize it as that's not that's kind of old fashioned now. That's a thing from that's more from the 80s and 90s. Uh, and it's still tolerated for younger kids mm. because at that point, yeah, it's like sort of before kids are really forming a distinct individual identity. And we think, okay, well, we got to, you know, give them something. Uh, and so people don't, people who complain about it, I think just, just as you have for the Lego aisle and mm. Lego keeps doing it anyway, um, yep. because they don't, yeah, it's just a fundamental part of their business model that would really shake things up hugely if they did away with it completely. Um, yeah. So I, I think it's become the, that's, that's the sort of middle of the road or like the, you know, mainstream liberal policy is like, as far as culture production goes, is like, Mm -hmm. yeah, you should make everything for everyone. And of course, um, investors and business people like to hear that or say that. And, you know, nobody's going to say it in publicly. Otherwise, Mm -hmm. secretly in behind closed doors, it's a completely different story. Uh, Even if you have a a CEO of a game studio out in public saying like, oh yeah, we try to make our games accessible for everyone. This is, you know, we're not trying to exclude anybody. Then behind closed doors, they're like, actually, you know, this is our target market. Our target market is exactly this guy, Hmm. right? We have a very specific idea of who this game is for. And now we just don't talk about it as much anymore because it's not cool. But the entire apparatus of buying advertisements and choosing where to advertise is still structured mm-hmm. around this idea. Yep. So it hasn't it hasn't actually gone away. 
And it's it's just a easy low hanging target to be like, oh yeah, you know, maybe maybe make it a little less like fewer bikini shots in the game. <laughs> we can claim that it's not just for guys. Uh, well, you know, get it a little bit more towards that nice Uniqlo neutral. Um, <laughs> I don't know. That's too funny. Yeah. Uh, I have, I have, uh, I could talk to you about this for a long time. So, uh, but let me, I don't want to take, I don't want to take your whole afternoon. So, so let me switch gears to a totally different question. And I actually, I think I, I kind of foreshadowed, um, for you in my email, um, in, in especially in K twelve education, you can hardly uh, sneeze without hearing some professional development or some post or article that refers to gamifying education. And I'm curious, from a game designer's perspective, and somebody who also uh, teaches, how you feel about. Uh, that term is it uh, is it is it good for education is it uh, or or something else like bad for education <laughs> <laughs> bad neutral yeah um, it's it's a little hard to evaluate just on the basis of a word because at this point people mean so many different types of things when they say gamification. So when that word first came into wide use, uh, what I remember it being used to signify was systems of uh, badges, points, and levels, kind of achievement-oriented measures to say, okay, we're going to track what a user of a system is doing and then kind of show them that Oh yeah, you've leveled up to level four. Oh, you you got the like recruited two of your friends to join this yeah. platform badge and stuff like that. That to me is that's the sort of the simplest level of gamification. And I think a lot of people that are still going around and evangelizing gamification talk about that as as being like ground floor gamification or um or even some people would say like that's the sort of the stupid kind of gamification. <laughs> right. Um, and it, I think it, it's certainly maybe the kind that has spread the widest in terms of people talking about techniques, because the what proponents of gamification call the more, you know, the more complex or advanced forms or the sort of deeper forms of engagement um, that could still go under the rubric of gamification or that some people call playification. Uh, they they're all a little bit more like design philosophies rather than techniques you can just kind of toss into your classroom or your marketing campaign mm. uh, and they sort of have to do with oh yeah like making making your product playful like really thinking about interface design uh, in a way that it makes it a joy to interact with uh, like harnessing user creativity giving um, users kind of almost like biofeedback like insight into their activity on a platform uh, you know, connecting users with each other and letting them kind of, you know, define their activities. There's all sorts of things that are now under this broader umbrella of like everything gamification that could mean that's not just badges, points, uh, and levels and mm. missions and, you know, whatever else um, you could sort of stick under that rubric. So that broader set of things is, I think, also kind of harder to evaluate. Um, it starts to blend in with 
oh, you know, in a classroom setting with like, oh, like how do we really think about active, engaged learning, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. It's uh, it's no longer, especially in the education context, this is the kind of thing that educators have been thinking about for years, uh, how to do more hands-on learning, how to uh, really provide valuable feedback for students, have students feel like they're, you know, they're part of shaping their own education. Um, and actually just using games themselves in the classroom as a teaching tool, something that's going on for many decades, even before the advent of video games, right? So sure. um, that stuff, I I guess I would say, yeah, it's, it's fine and great. I don't know if like people have been talking about those things without the word gamification for years. The, I guess the more overt, overt gamification, and maybe, maybe this is what you're asking about, um, are these systems that, you know, turn the classroom into an RPG where you are, you have a class, uh, and you level up and you earn points that you can spend on things like a pizza party at the end of the semester, if you get enough of them, that kind of stuff. Uh, mm-hmm. is what I associate most strongly with gamification in the classroom. Um, am I on the like the right track? Yeah, you sure are. I, I mean, I think that um, what's great about your answer is that you just summarized, I think, um, a few different ways that educators use the term, right. um, but, but don't often realize that uh, they're using a term that other educators are seeing uh, a totally different way. Um, so I think what's most beneficial about your answer is that, uh, we have, you've just described from an expert perspective, uh, or someone who knows the history of these things, uh, that there are multiple meanings here and, um, without saying it, uh, without saying it, uh, in a in a bland way, uh, you I think it's a, a warning to kind of be careful and be mindful, and that's that's kind of what I was after. My biggest fear with gamification is that um, it it can mean something, but as with anything in any field, but in education particularly, we love we love the idea of solutions and. Um, Oftentimes, we're so quick to grab onto solutions that we don't realize that either, A, they're not novel solutions, and we've been doing that for a long time and uh, calling it something different, uh, or um, B, that we can sometimes mistake a set of values for a pedagogy or a practice. And I think that uh, that's my that's probably my biggest fear with gamification is that uh, educators think that it's a practice uh, or or a pedagogy rather, uh, not realizing that um, it has multiple meanings and that uh, it can mean very different things and that they replace the great things some of the great things that they're doing with a new buzzword misunderstanding that it's not intended to replace necessarily, but, uh, uh, be additive, you know, and, and, um, so anyway, your answer is super helpful and, and great. Yeah. And I mean, I can, I can add a couple thoughts onto great. that if it would help. Please. Um, yeah. So I think it's, it's funny. The, the, the extent to which gamification, um, any of these techniques you're talking about, but certainly the ones that are 
the more overt badge point mission level currency systems. Uh, to the, the extent that they're helpful, I think is pretty close to the extent that they are functioning as a pedagogy. Uh, and that pedagogy, I think, is pretty similar to existing ideas of, of active learning, of meaningful participation by students in, in creating and shaping the structures that are kind of governing their, their performance and feedback. Uh, so I think you know the the end point that you get to is pretty close to the the goals of of pedagogy that involves those ideas. Uh, so the question I think becomes is is gamification like a really useful tool for that? Um, and at the at the outer edges of the big umbrella, I think that the the, the tools and techniques start to look really similar to what teachers are already doing. Uh, when, and when it comes to the the core or the you know the central ideas of of points, badges, missions, and levels, um, it's funny the the success stories that I've looked at and heard about, they they all manage to avoid the trap of substituting extrinsic motivators for intrinsic motivators, right? And this is the this is the central problem or fear with gamification mm -hmm. uh, that's borne out in a lot of studies, right? That if you if you try to pay students to get better grades, it decreases their performance, at least according to some research. Yep. Because they've lost their intrinsic motivation to learn. Um, so the question is, oh, can you do it in a way? Can you put these extrinsic seeming things like points and badges uh, into a classroom in a way where it doesn't? destroy or replace intrinsic motivation, but actually fuels intrinsic motivation. Yeah. And the answer is, of course, a good teacher can do that, right? It's like you can give uh, a good teacher uh, like a, a set of generic playing pieces for a game and some, you know, some very simple pedagogical goals and they can come up with something amazing uh, because they're a good teacher. And I think that so much of good teaching is about um, putting students in touch with their own intrinsic motivations and sort of helping them stay in touch with that stuff that uh, it it never surprises me when when it's like, oh, yeah, I, you know, my, all of my students not only leveled up to, you know, level 30, it was fantastic. And then, you know, they were connecting with each other more. Uh, we, we talked a lot about the class. Um, and... They were much more engaged in in sort of deciding, you know, what we would do at the end of the semester. And it's like, yeah, that all sounds like like really good teaching. And it's wonderful if from the, the teacher's point of view that the like having a, a quest and level system was uh, a great tool to sort of get you there on that road. I actually kind of have a sneaking suspicion that that's more about the teacher liking games mm. than the students. And if the if the teacher and students can connect around Hey, you know, it'd be fun if we sort of played a game together over the course of the semester, and that the teacher isn't just using that as a as something to lean on, like uh, to or to replace the way that they teach already, but is actually into the idea themselves, kind of like understands even intuitively uh, how motivation works in games and how that can connect to what's being taught. Then, mm -hmm. then yeah, that's super. That's like, you know, you the the teacher got on a very cool. Um, engine that sort of they were able to like ride into uh, a, a new level of engagement with their students. Um, and then you could have another teacher 
do the same thing, uh, but with a very different kind of attitude and and completely not work, right? So mm. <laughs> uh, I, it's just maybe a slightly more roundabout way of saying the same things uh, that you were mentioning before. But um, yeah, it's a, it's a tool. It maybe, it, I think it works for, for some teachers. It certainly doesn't replace all of the things that teachers have to do in order to maintain intrinsic motivation. And if you just kind of slapped it on there as an easy fix, then yeah, well, then it almost certainly fail. Hmm. Amen. Um, I don't want to take too much of your time. I'm going to ask okay. you one more question, but feel free to be brief. And uh, okay, there are right now, especially in um, game games based uh, learning and in uh, informal programs, especially that teach game design, obviously there's some overlap between uh, game design and computer science and the idea, um, here's my question is, do you think that we should be more interested at the moment in um, motivating young people to become game designers and developers or is it more important that we're developing a sense, uh, a set of skills and senses that game design affords um, as it relates to what's most important for this generation's future? I guess I would, I would definitely have to say it's a, a wider impact for more people to acquire through playing games, studying how they're made, making some games themselves to, to, to learn how to do system thinking uh, and to sort of appreciate, um, yeah, appreciate the, the aesthetics of systems at that level and kind of also maybe learn a little bit how to see systems in the world all around us. Um, that, that's, that has a extremely broad applicability that I think is part of civic education in general, uh, as well as a sort of the creative appreciation of the arts, including games. Um, that to me is the real reason to, to teach game design and development practices more widely. Mm. Uh, I think, yeah, naturally in that process, some students are going to really find that they love doing that and then go on to continue to make games professionally or as amateurs. And that's wonderful too. Uh, but but really the the work that those uh, students do, the ones who sort of really have a, a thing for making games, will be supported by all of the other students who actually have a slightly better appreciation uh, for games after you know maybe learning how to play them. And I think it's mm. this is a very similar model to why why we think about education in music and, and stuff like that to be, useful, right? It's not that we expect everybody to go on and play music and make money at it. Certainly not. But we, you, you learn a lot um, of different kinds of things by, by practicing and playing music. You don't just learn about music. There are a number of other attendant skills and social interactions and discipline and all sorts of stuff. And then when after that, when you hear music, you, you have acquired a slightly different taste for it 
And that's really good for us as a culture in general. So I think the same thing is true of games. There are arguments to be made that are specific to games about how they actually allow us to appreciate systems better. And that may have a lot of ramifications for how we think about politics, the environment, and so forth. Um, I think that has yet to be entirely borne out, but I'm, I'm still pretty, pretty persuaded that there's potential there. I'm, I'm curious what you think about whether, with respect to what you just said, mm-hmm. uh, you almost, it's interesting because you make me think, I am in this world where, you know, I help lead an organization that's very focused on uh, equity in STEM. Right. And it frustrates me endlessly that uh, I, I can't go into a room with funders to talk about uh, how important it is that we teach game design or, or principles of, uh, of, of games and play without them making it into a workforce conversation. Um, and what you just made me think is, is that uh, in a way, and I, I'm testing an idea on you mm-hmm. to see what you think, in, in a way, uh, games and game design belong as a humanities um, area, as, you know, as much as it belongs as, and maybe even more so uh, as it belongs to a sort of engineering discipline or... Um, I, I suppose it's it's multidisciplinary, of course, but uh, I don't know something something I love about the argument that it's about it's it kind of is about the humanities. Yeah, yeah I mean, I'm very firmly on that side of the argument um, and have been for years. I'm kind of part of a school that that makes that argument, um, both uh, in the informal sense of school and the literal form. <laughs> Mm-hmm. That's our. That's the whole reason uh, why m- the program that I teach in at NYU exists is to teach games as humanities, um, and we've sort of firmly believe and tell all of our students, like, look, it's it's kind of an accident of history that there's a lot of engineering involved in games at this moment. It was not true in the past. It may not be true in the future. Uh, the, what you are learning to do here is applicable across history because it's the same techniques that you would use to design a game on paper as you would to design a game for um, that's coded. Mm. And in the future, you know, your coding tools may look super different. You might have to like, you know, learn completely different systems or maybe they'll become so easy to use that it won't be the same kind of coding at all, but sure. game design will so, still sort of be around. It'll be, you know, you'll have, of course have to think about specific platforms, but um there's stuff that's kind of fundamental and transhistoric. Now, not everyone mm-hmm. agrees with that. I think, you know, that what I just said is the kind of like heavily overstated version mm-hmm. um, because I think there are some specificities that you have to pay attention to, for instance, with video games. But, uh, but I think there's something to be said for that. And it's also maybe a useful antidote to the fact that Everybody wants to present themselves as being STEM education. Uh, That's where the funding is. That's where you get into these workforce conversations. We are a STEM program despite espousing games as humanities (laughs) for all the reasons that you might expect. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. I I can hardly take it (laughs) (laughs) with with the acronyms and the jargon. Uh, uh, Well, um, I wonder whether in the coming whatever weeks months whatever's convenient for you um if that doesn't make 
sense as a place to end this conversation, but open up another one mm-hmm. um, and talk talk more about the program at NYU because I would love to. Um, obviously, I, I'm I would. I think what I want to think about a little bit is how to have you on to, to have some conversation about the program at NYU, um, but make it a conversation too about how young people who aren't, you know, can't necessarily access NYU um, can be part of the school that you describe without right. having to uh, take on the kind of burden that they would uh, to go to NYU. Sure. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I may have to say something in that case about our free high school program, but yeah. <laughs> that, you know, and that's that's funny that you say that because um, one of the students, I wonder if you know her, uh, Geneva, uh, went to your summer, the, the free summer program. Yeah, you know, I, I, I have not met or worked with her personally, but I've actually heard her name from oh, she's the wonderful. person that runs our summer program and she was like yeah she's completely amazing so <laughs> yeah geneva hayward she you will uh, no doubt you will uh you will hear her name again she's great Excellent. um naomi thank you so much for your time yeah, my pleasure. I, I i know that it's uh always precious i for uh <laughs> for what it's worth i feel uh way smarter after this conversation yeah very uh, really fun to think about for me too and Great questions. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm excited if, if you could use my help for the podcast in the future. Just let me know. I love talking about this stuff and thinking about it. Terrific. Thank you so much. Sure thing. This podcast was produced in partnership with City University of New York's master's program in youth studies at SPS. Learn more at sps.cuny.edu. And Mouse, a national youth development nonprofit that believes in technology as a force for good find us at mouse.org. The tracks in this podcast were produced by Leroy Tindy, a guest in episode zero and young person who still owes me a chance to beat him at one-on-one. Find him on SoundCloud at Air Tindy Beats. The podcast is produced by me, Mark Lesser, a learner like you, and our show notes can be found at nosuchthingpodcast.wordpress.com.